When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by The New Yorker's Evan Osnos, who, in conversation with Mark Mardell, discussed what we need to know about President Joe Biden, whether he is a radical or a moderate. And looking back on his first hundred days of office, what can we learn about how he will approach big foreign policy issues on Russia, China, Taiwan, and the issue which has been at the forefront of his administration, climate change? It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Evan's book, Joe Biden, American Dreamer, in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Mo Model. Tomorrow, Joe Biden will address both houses of Congress. Remember, it's not the State of the Union. We don't call it that at this stage. And on Friday, he'll see him pass an iconic landmark, the first hundred days in office. So I'm especially delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Evan Osnos, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and staff writer at The New Yorker. He's the former Beijing bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune and a regular guest on NPR's Fresh Air and PBS NewsHour. And he's also the author of this book, Joe Biden, American Dreamer. Welcome, Evan. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you. Now, Evan, New York Times headlines today, Biden to seek $80 billion tax crackdown, Biden to raise minimum wage for federal contractors, Biden to help workers join unions. There's a disconnect between the people, way people saw Joe Biden as rather a centrist, cautious Democrat and the radical actions we've seen so far. How, how do you explain that? Well, I, I'd say that you know, I, I actually posed that question last summer to Barack Obama, who was at that point, of course, watching the election from retirement. And I, I said, help me square this situation. This man, Joe Biden, who you know so well, who's been a centrist all his life, is now suddenly talking. At that point, he was already beginning to say he wanted to have, as he put it, the most progressive presidency since FDR. I said, is he is he transformed before our very eyes or what? And President Obama's view was, no, look, the reality is that the circumstances have changed so profoundly. The combination of 
COVID, of course, and at that point, the rising protests around racial injustice, that it had sort of crystallized for Biden the fact that this was not going to be an ordinary presidency for anybody. And I think what we're seeing now is the recognition on his part that there was a tremendous amount of what I might call deferred maintenance in American politics, that for a generation, we'd really been either failing to try or failing to succeed in passing the kinds of major reforms that would keep democracy functioning, keep it vibrant, and also keep people within some reasonable prospect of achieving the gains in their lives that they expect from from the economy. And those are all of the things that have sort of that have come together. And I would add one other piece of it, Mark, and then I'll, I'll end this soliloquy. But the, the other piece of it that I think is that is that is important and is a part of the reason why you're seeing one thing after another is that, of course, he comes to this after this very, very long preamble in American politics. He's been in government. He's been in Washington since 1973. And he's surrounded himself as well by people who are very capable practitioners of government. So one of the things that you've seen in the early days is there's not a whole lot of uh, them having to go in and figure out what it what it feels like to be in the White House. How do you work together? There's not a whole lot of you know drama. They're basically getting in there and going to to work quite mercilessly when it comes to attacking the problems that they see before them. So it's it's that combination. And how much do you think his experience as vice president and Obama's experience as president played into it with the Republican intransigence? He's always seen as a guy who tries to reach across the aisle, tries to do deals, make deals. Well, that's been really an important piece of this. He came into this mouthing the language of an older era in which, as he said, I think that the fever will break once Donald Trump is gone. And he sort of imagined that there would be this reorientation of Republican politics and that people would become a bit more cooperative. Now, he didn't think they were all going to become pliant and, and friendly, but I think that one of the big important differences today, 100 days in effectively, versus where it was on the day he started, is the degree of sheer intransigence that he is encountering. Um, that it is, I mean, just to put a number on it, the latest polls show you that, that Biden is popular with 96% of Democrats, and he's popular with 10% of Republicans. That We've never had a spread of 86% between the parties on a president. This is, you know, unlike anything, even Donald Trump was, was not that polarizing. And I think any fair assessment would be that, you know, it's Biden is a less polarizing person in himself, but the moment has changed. Uh, his policies are clearly aggressive. And I think the other thing is that, as you say, Mark, he is bearing the, the lessons of his first time in the White House as vice president, in which he feels like they waited too long, they tried too hard to get bipartisanship, and it didn't really work. And so even more so than him, it's actually people around him. They're not going to be singed quite that way again, and they're moving faster. Yeah, and how much do you think, how big a change is it? I mean, I've called it radical, but how big a change is it? I saw, I'm just looking for quote from one commentator, the neoliberal era is behind us. Everything has changed. Has it really? No. I mean, functionally, there's always a, there's a, for one thing, there's a huge difference between proposing these reforms or proposing these changes and having them actually come to pass. And one of the things that's happened, so for instance, this infrastructure bill, which after all is, you know, is as large as $4 trillion and encompasses things like traditional physical infrastructure, like bridges and ports and roads and so on, but also things like 
childcare assistance, pre-K, all of these other elements that have been that that they are pursuing as part of this much larger, what we might call sort of a post-neoliberal approach to American governance, but it hasn't passed yet. And we don't yet know what it will look like by the time it's passed. But I think what that commentator is getting to, which is actually a, a, is a genuine insight, is that the reason why Biden is pursuing things as large as, as they are, is that he recognizes that the mood has fundamentally shifted in American politics among the public. I mean, just if you look at the numbers on how people talk about what they expect of governance, it used to be over the last 40 years, more or less, the dominant view has been that we want a government that is smaller and provides less services. That view is now flipped. And there is just fundamentally a much greater commitment, a much greater desire for an active, even an activist government that can because uh, help COVID? people solve the problems. I think it predated COVID, actually. I mean, in, you know, the truth is that I think you have to really find the origins of it in the depth of economic disparity in American life. It begins with income inequality, but it ranges through all of the measurements of things like opportunity, the ability for somebody to uh, exceed the earnings of their parents. These kinds of things, which have been such a an essential piece of the American story that we tell ourselves are sort of braided into the American mantra have really been have really been fraying over the course of a generation. It's not a two year problem. It's not even a, a five year problem. I mean, these are just the reality is that the, the, the chances of somebody being able to uh, out earn their parents has radically diminished from where it was in the 1940s. You know, the, 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 the level of detail that we have about people not being able to escape the origins of their of their lives geographically or economically. I mean, essentially, the zip code you're born into is very often, you know, ordains the course of your life in racial terms and in economic terms. That awareness has become much clearer. And I think, I think that has crystallized, particularly among young people, this millennial and Gen Z cohort in America, which after all, by the end of this decade, will represent the majority of the American electorate, that they are much more aware of the fact that there are structural facts in their lives that they cannot personally over overcome unless they have some kind of change on the part of the government. And that's what drives it. And all that has to be paid for. Are we beginning to see him talk about that? He is talking about it insofar as he's saying it's time to, to reimagine the American tax code. And that's, of course, a very controversial thing to say. But he's quite clear about it. He says the corporate taxes need to go up and also taxes on the wealthiest Americans need to go up. I think there's also a view that, you know, there's been a frustration in American politics that it tends to be that conservatives get very concerned about the deficit and the debt whenever it's Democrats who are spending the money. And then all of a sudden, when Donald Trump comes in and he, after all, expanded the national debt by a trillion and a half dollars, that you didn't hear a lot of complaints from Republicans about it. So I think there is now a greater willingness on the part of uh, Democrats to to sort of more or less say, we understand that you have your concerns now, but we're going to proceed ahead as long as we have the politics behind us, as long as we have the, the votes to do it. So yeah, it'll come mostly from, you know, to use the political shorthand that you hear from trying to get the wealthiest Americans to pay more of their share. And there is, I will tell you, interestingly, Mark, you know, over the last few years, even before COVID, 
I was having a lot of conversations with people who are very successful in economic terms in American life, billionaires, people who, you know, run hedge funds and, you know, have become sort of the winners of this era of the last 30 or 40 years, this neoliberal era. And among a few of them, not the most, but some influential people were beginning to say, we recognize that the current trajectory is totally unsustainable. There's a guy named Ray Dalio, who's the you know founder of a big hedge fund. And he started to say a couple of years ago, even before COVID, even before the economic um, the economic crisis produced by the virus, he said, if you look back in history, having a, a disparities in wealth that are this profound are unsustainable. It won't end well. And that idea was just beginning to take hold. And it's been clearly crystallized and made quite clear um, by the effects, uh, the disparate effects of the pandemic. Now, why did you decide to write the book? Obviously, there was a chance he would become president, but we, I don't think when you started, you knew he was going to become president. Well, I got interested in him a long time ago, actually. I mean, it was really when I started writing about him. I started interviewing him in person when I came to the United States from, yeah, I'm an American, but I was abroad for 10 years and I moved back to Washington. And in 2014, I, I went to go see him and I came away with this sense that he was sort of a bit of an untapped resource journalistically because he knew a lot. He'd been around a lot. He'd had some scars already. And he was also involved in a lot of important issues. He was doing a lot of foreign affairs, things like that. And so I went to see him again. And again, I started writing about him a bit. And look, the honest answer is, Mark, I didn't, I didn't know that he would become president. I certainly started, I published the book even before election day. So it was a bit of a gamble. But it was also, I thought, I remember at the time thinking, you know, my wife and I talked about it. I said, well, I suppose if he doesn't win, this book will have a significantly shorter durability. But the truth was that there was something I just find inherently interesting about his life because his life has been full of these really extraordinary turns that you could not have predicted. I once, I mean, actually, when he announced that he was running for president in 2020, I wrote a, a short bit on the, uh, at the New Yorker in which I said that the fact that he was even running was kind of un, unimaginably, uh, it was unimaginable a few years earlier because he, of course, had left the administration. It seemed to be the end of his life in politics. And then here he was coming back. And I said, it was just the latest in this unexpected turn of events. And then you had him rise to the top of the field, but then look like as if he was about to drop out of the race and, and then finally, of course, prevail. So it was... Yeah, I, I, it's one of the phrases from you your know. book that struck me, you said some people saw it as the waiter comes back with a choice from the kitchen of oatmeal or rat poison. <laughs> yeah, there was a bit of that. You know, young people especially were not all that excited about Joe Biden. And I will tell you one thing that's interesting. One of the reasons why I thought he was a bit of a stronger candidate that I thought perhaps some of the commentary captured was that a lot of the political press corps tends to be trends a little younger. It trends towards the coasts, tends to be people who have are living in places like New York and Washington and San Francisco and L.A. and so on. And that community of writers tends to be much more interested in the frontier of the party, the progressive, uh, particularly young people like AOC or Bernie Sanders, who was in many ways kind of speaking for this much younger cohort. Joe Biden never excited that community. But what you found when you traveled around, around the country, and I happened to be doing a lot of that for my work at The New Yorker, was that, in fact, he did have this reservoir of goodwill. And it was 
it was there. He had accumulated it over a long period of time. People recognized him. They knew him. This was a very anxious time in American life, even before COVID. And people felt like they were gravitating to something familiar, somebody they knew. And then the other piece of it that I think is important is this is a key insight that his campaign really believed it was important and, and almost nobody else really did, but they were right, was that 58% of American Democrats call themselves either moderate or conservative Democrats. That's an extraordinarily powerful fact. And um, what that means is that a lot of American Democrats in places that are not New York and Washington were all not all that comfortable with the other members of the 18 or 19 person Democratic field. He was, of course, the oldest and the most conservative member of that field. And in fact, he turned out to be dominant. Part of his extraordinary story is these terrible tragedies that struck his life. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you think that's changed him, made him. Well, I think, you know, people know the contours of it, after all. I mean, he, he was, from the very earliest moments he was in public life, he was known for being somebody who had survived the terrible fact that his wife, Amelia Hunter, and their daughter, Naomi, were killed in a car accident. And I, I think the piece, and then later in life, of course, his son, Bo Biden, died of a brain tumor in 2015. But in some ways, each of those moments really changed this person in in ways that are essential to understanding his politics really i mean the first one the the accident in 72 the effect of it had a lot of different things but one of the effects was that it meant that he never moved to washington dc so he lived in wilmington delaware because he had to go home every night he had these two boys he was a single father at that point he was raising these kids Bo and hunter and as a result of the fact that he was never permanently living in Washington, it really put him a bit on the outside of the inner perimeter. And, you know, there were various reasons for that. Part of it was that he hadn't gone to the fanciest schools, you know, he was not quite as smooth. He, he sometimes likes to joke that people in Washington have a bit of Rhodes Scholar disease, uh, and he puts himself outside of that, that, uh, that, that community. And I, but the fact that he never lived here, he was never sitting at the same dinner party tables every night. You know, he got a bit of that, but he was always a bit of on the inside and on the outside. And as a result... It meant that he he has a slightly different posture. I mean, he is, of course, as much a part of Washington as anybody else is after after you know fifty years of being here. But he is not quite of the place in the same way, and that's important. That's um, really interesting because I was going to ask you. I mean, I've watched and watched again the kid from Scranton, his uh, political ladder, made a piece around it, and I was wondering how much is it opposed this sort of working class mining background didn't have a mining background i mean how much is it is it made up how much truth in it is there in it well it is what's i'll tell you the the short answer to that and then there's an interesting the short answer is that it is uh like any political identity it is some degree of affectation and creation that's just a fact he hasn't lived in scranton since he was eight or ten years old but the, the deeper fact is that that sense, that sort of awareness of class and these questions of working class credibility or the affectations of elitism, all of those kinds of things are very present in his mind. I mean, to, his father, as you, as you might remember, Mark, was somebody who grew up with some money and then his father's family sort of lost it along the way. And his father still had this one little physical artifact of wealth, which was that he kept a polo mallet 
in the front hall closet in their house. And I always, but his father, of course, was selling cars by that point. He was not a person who was, you know, a great uh, industrialist or anything. And so, so Biden kind of grew up with, in a sense, he had just the phantom limb of money. He didn't have any money. And that has a big impact on a person. And he, he went to private school on scholarship. He worked on the grounds crew in order to be able to attend this Catholic school in, in, in Delaware. So none of that is opposed in the sense that he really does carry himself with a bit of a chip on his shoulder about it. And yeah, you write respect is really important to him. Tremendously important. I mean, that's a word that kept coming up over and over again. I, as I was first starting to spend time around him, you kind of, as you know how it is, Mark, you start to sort of inventory in your mind these words that you hear your, your subject going back to over and over. And one of them was, was respect. And he could tell you today, I mean, you know, 50 years, 60 years after he was a teenager, he could tell you the names of the kids that he went to school with who mocked him and bullied him for having a stutter. And there are two ways, I think, that a, that a person can internalize that as an adult. One is that you turn some of that pain on other people. And you know, we all know the stories of the sort of the bullied who becomes the bully. And then there's another way, which is that you become, in a sense, kind of something else, where you become more aware of the emotional temperature in the room. And he is more like that. I mean, he is, he has this habit of when he walks into a room, he can figure out who it is that feels vulnerable there. He, I've heard this from multiple people, not all of whom like him, but they will say he has this, he has this ability to go in and kind of sense who is feeling fragile and he'll go in and sort of buck them up a little, make them feel reassured. I mean, I had an interesting conversation with Pete Buttigieg, now the secretary of transportation, who was telling me about his experience during the campaign and I just, this image lingers with me, which is that backstage before some of their debates, Pete Buttigieg was saying that, you know, it's kind of interesting to watch these political players. Everybody has a different way of responding to the pressure. And he said, uh, he said, some people were talking to each other, you know, huddling among the candidates. Some people were talking to themselves, kind of muttering madly in those moments before going on television. And then he said, and Joe Biden was talking to the stagehands and he was talking to the production people. And he was just kind of just kind of talking to the people who had the least power in any conventional metric. And that is not opposed. That that seems to be a part of where he's most comfortable. That sort of comfort with other people, and obviously it's diminished during COVID, you don't see so much of it, but even so, he seems more distant, more cooler as president than I've ever seen him before. I think he feels a, a certain gravity, a sense of alarm, frankly, about where the country is and what it's contending with and what it will take to get through it. And that has that has quieted him. He's not a particularly jovial presence in public right now. I mean, that's, he is, he's trying to recognize that there are Americans today who are suffering on an extraordinary scale. After all, we've lost half, more than half a million lives over the last year and a half to COVID, which is a scale just almost beyond reckoning. I mean, it's more than World War One, World War Two, and Vietnam and 9-11 combined. And so he's, I think his, he feels this sense that he has to primarily communicate that recognition of the grief. 
But I think there's another piece of it, which is slightly less gloomy, which is that he he also comes to this with a belief that government is a noble enterprise. And, you know, that's kind of an unfashionable thing to assert, actually, in government. In Washington, you know, for much of the last generation, it's really been the dominant view has been that, as Ronald Reagan said, you know, the nine most fearsome words in, in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Joe Biden says something very different. He called his very first action as president, the help is here tour. So he's very conscious of the idea that people want something from the powers of government. And and he's eager to try to restore confidence in it. What about Joe Bombs? Obama's for a phrase that you, know, you people around Obama that you record, his gaffes, his mistakes. Um, I mentioned about not being a minor, I mean, which he sort of mentioned in the when he um, plagiarized Neil Kinnock. Right. We haven't seen any of those recently, but what do you put it down to? Because you've got I, quite I think, a charitable interpretation. Well, I, I've come to see it now. I mean, so look, I think the time... In, in, in the 87, 88 race, as you so rightly described, you know, he stole the words of Neil Kinnock and, uh, you know, he, um, he, he, uh, he, he was also um, found to have taken words from Bobby Kennedy. And there was this very clear sense at the time that he was being sloppy about the way that he was communicating and he got caught. And, and later, it took actually a long time for him to sort of come to terms with that, with the failure of that race. And he was asked in 2008 about why he bombed out of that race back then. And, and he said, really, it was one of the first times I heard him sort of say it bluntly. He said, he said, the, the truth was I was too arrogant to win that race. I wasn't ready to be president. And there is a way in which all of the scar tissue he's accumulated over the course of his life has kind of quieted him down. He is not today the lean and hungry, young, ambitious man that he was for a very long time. I mean, almost sort of a little longer than he probably should have been. I mean, there was a degree to which the fact that he'd gotten into Congress so young meant that he was permanently in his mind sort of trapped in amber as the youngest man in the room. And I think there was a, that kept him always a little bit, and he was a little bit, as we've talked about, he was always a little bit insecure about some of his credentials. And so that made him push a little too far sometimes to try to wow the crowd. He, it was a memorable expression he once wrote early on in his life that he had discovered that when he spoke to a crowd, that if he really, really worked at it, that he could connect with every individual face in the room and he could persuade them. And that, that was actually a, a bit of a perilous pursuit because if you do that too much, then it becomes, that's what leads you into the kind of Joe bombs where you end up saying the wrong thing. But I, I think he's, he's, he's settled down. And there is one sad bit of this actually that's worth mentioning is that the death of Bo Biden in 2015, somebody who's close to Biden told me that that was such a punch in the gut. You know, Bo was very, very close and that was just almost a little more than he could bear the father. And, and there was a moment when afterwards, it, as this person said, it killed off the last bit of arrogance in Joe Biden. And I think that is the sort of high school quarterback who was still kind of swaggering around the Senate. That, that person was more or less retired at that point. And you see instead this more 
this a slightly sort of more this graver person has emerged and that's more or less who we're dealing with and let's be blunt look he is some people will say he's dull some people will say he's boring some people will say i just read something funny that said that said he's actively sedative in his approach to public communication right now look i i and i think that some of that is because he sees this as serious business and uh and he's no longer out to try to dazzle every face in the room who is he now then he is a, a a person who finally, at the right moment in his life, got a hold of the thing that he thought he needed forty years ago, and was not a, not right for it forty years ago. Um, he sort of graduated at this point, seventy eight years old, into this role. And I mean, I conclude in the book, and I think it's in its own way, it's. It's it's a kind of uncanny coincidence of the man and the moment because Americans have been so brutalized by the last four years in in all kinds of ways, politically, physically, personally. You know, I mean, we've had the our the U.S. Capitol stormed by deluded insurrectionists, for God's sake. That the, the, sh- the combination of that cries out for something, which is a person whose belief is that politics does not need to be this raging fire. That's the word he used on his inauguration. It does not have to be a raging fire. And I think that turns out to be a key insight. It's very hard to talk about American politics without talking about race. Hmm. Where is he now on that? Because... I've read, I think, in your book that, that that rally in Charleston, the white supremacist rally, was what impelled him to stand this time round. And yet he's got a history where he's seen as being on the wrong side of the debate over busing, over crime bill. I know that was a long time ago, but where is he mm. now on race? Well, he is now in a very progressive position, and it was not where he always was. I mean, I just, I, I think it's worth acknowledging the fact that in the early part of his career, he was probably the Democratic Party's most emphatic opponent of busing. And it was of court, of court ordered busing, but it's a technical detail that in the end, put him on on the side of segregationists. This was in the early 1970s, of course. And I think what was happening at that point, and this is sort of a theme that carries through to today and explains where he is today, is that at the time, he was from this very divided state, swing part north, part south. And he thought he had to represent what his state represented. There was actually literal examples of him initially being, he was in favor of busing and he got his head handed to him by white suburban parents who said, not on our watch. And so he changed his view. And so there is that sense of a very young Joe Biden being kind of malleable. And that's where the Democratic Party was, you know, the Democratic Party in the early 1970s and nationally, in fact, you know, it was the Americans were not in favor of busing. And that's, that's where he was. As somebody said to me, you know, Joe Biden is, is a nearly perfect weather vane for the center of the Democratic Party. And that means that today, what you see is that as the party has become much more explicit in its pursuit of racial equity, of addressing historic injustices, of trying to bring about finally some breakthrough in American in, in, in the abuses around race in America, that you see him as, as becoming somebody who is very much in the center of that. And I think one thing that changed him, Mark, was being tapped to be the vice president by the first African-American president. You know, it changed how Biden saw himself. All of a sudden, he saw himself as somebody who could become a kind of a servant of history, who could help 
push the country forward in this very important way. And I, he, I, he's never said this to me quite this way, but I get the sense that he realized that it was also a form of redemption, that it was a way to acknowledge that in the first part of his life, he had often found himself in a passive position, or in some cases on the opposite side of history when it came to something like integration. There was one very revealing moment actually once, about on the 30th anniversary, I think it was, of the march in Selma, he, uh, Selma, Alabama, he he said at, at a at a speech, he said, you know, the honest thing is I didn't march and I should have been here and I wish I was here. And it was not on his prepared remarks. He just kind of added it at the time. So I, I think there was a piece of him that has come to realize at this stage in his life that particularly because he comes from this position of, you know, centrism and because he is known as somebody who is part of the silent generation, 78 years old, that he's able to try to push things forward. And you see him, of course, tapping uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, who represents making of history on on multiple measures, the first woman, first African-American, and also, of course, the first Indian-American. So he has become somebody who is quite activist on the matters of race. And that leads us neatly into our first question from the audience. To what extent do you think his relationship with Kamala Harris is performative? I don't know about performative. That's That gets inside their heads in a way that I don't feel confident doing. What I know is that they think that they, I, I know that they believe that the public presentation matters. And so it matters to, it matters to them that she is in the room, literally and metaphorically, when it comes to the affairs of the administration. And, but I, I don't think it's performative in the sense that they're sort of trying to do something that's not true to the way the administration's organized. He believes that vice presidents matter, which, by the way, is a totally unpopular view in the history of, of, of American governance, because vice presidents for a long time were really not that important. But he came into the job and was initially sort of wary of it and ended up getting advice from Walter Mondale, the late Walter Mondale, who just died, who told him that the way to be an effective vice president is to not get stuck in a narrow portfolio. You want to be as what Mondale described as a general advisor to the president. And that is what you've seen. That's certainly what Biden ended up doing. And it's also what Kamala Harris is doing. So Biden had a couple of specific assignments. In his case, it was it was Iraq. And ultimately, it was also dealing with migrants in Central America. And Kamala Harris has has been given somewhat of a similar brief in the sense that she's dealing with the border crisis. But more broadly, you see her in the room in all of these important moments. There's one other piece of it that I think is important, which is a part of that is because this is all we're living still in this virtual summitry age where Biden's not getting on a plane and flying to Beijing or flying to you know London. And as a result, in those cases, of course, the vice president would not be with him by design. They keep them separate. But because he's not going anywhere, she's in the room. So she's ended up playing, a, in a sense, a more visible role than she might in uh, in other circumstances. Another question. One of the Republican conspiracies is that Joe Biden is close to going senile and progressive Democrats are going to take over soon. Do you agree that it's only a matter of time before AOC takes over the Democratic <laughs> Party? <laughs> I'm afraid, no. I, I, that would make a one exciting plot twist, I suppose, but that we might have to wait for season two on that one. I think, uh, no. Uh, you know, part of the, I'd say one, if you were going to rank the moments of political malpractice over the last few years, 
One of them was Donald Trump deciding to call his opponent Sleepy Joe, you know, clinging to his the idea that he was clinging to cognitive function, all that did was then set them up so that when they were finally side by side on the debate stage, everybody would say, well, gosh, it seems to be Joe Biden's performing quite well. And so, you know, politics 101 is you should talk up your opponent, not talk them down. And, and Trump didn't get that one. But um, yeah, so they're waiting for him. If they're waiting, he is 78 years old. I mean, that is, I'm, I'm breaking this, that news here, but I, you know, I, I talk to people these days who are at all kinds of different places inside the government, encountering him at different moments, and nobody seems to think that he has lost a step in any kind of serious analytical way. It's just not really something that anybody with any proximity actually believes. But it, but his very age puts uh, certainly puts a heavy burden on Kamala Harris. What sort of president would she be? Well, she would she would come into it at this point. I think what we're seeing is that you know, she is generally more progressive than he is. And, you know, the irony, Mark, is that, of course, when she was a presidential candidate, progressives didn't have much time for her. They thought she's too too much yeah. of an establishment figure. You know, they were recalling her experience as attorney general in California, and they said that she had been too much associated with, um, with, uh, with incarceration. So... But all things are relative, and she is by 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 most definitions a, a, a credentialed progressive American figure. So, if were she to become president, I think you would see her as uh, representing that portion of the party. But there's a big difference between Kamala Harris and AOC, and I think we sometimes associate people too casually by saying, "Well, there's just one progressive wing and one establishment wing." There's a, there's there's a lot of diversity, ideological diversity within the party, and part of the reason why she's in the position she's in is because she and Joe Biden were able to figure out a way to break bread together. Which is, he was not going to put somebody in the vice presidency who was ideologically at odds with him. He just wasn't. It, it's he wouldn't feel comfortable doing it, and. You know, they are they share enough in common. I, I don't I don't see a Kamala Harris presidency as something that would be a radical shift in American politics. We haven't even touched on foreign affairs yet, but a question from Sarah gets us there. What do you think of Biden's reaction to Putin? And I know you've got a really I mean, really in interesting story that I thought I read this. I had to read it again. because I thought, <laughs> Wow, did he really? Well, you tell the story there. That was that was one that stuck with me, too. Uh, Biden told me the story first when we were flying on Air Force Two, actually, on the way back from Ukraine once. And this was before the 2016 election. Frankly, I was not paying all that much attention to Russia. But Biden has this quite persistent uh, interest and concern with Putin's government. And when he went to go visit Putin in, in, at the Kremlin in 2011, Putin at this point was prime minister. He was between presidencies. And he, uh, they, the two of them went into Putin's private office and they had this exchange in which Biden said to Putin, and this was a play, of course, on George W. Bush's line, but P Biden said, I'm looking into your eyes, Mr. Prime Minister, and I don't think you have a soul. To which Putin replied to Biden, I'm glad that we understand one another. <laughs> now, when, when Biden told the story. I am the devil. I have to say, I mean, it was one of those moments. I did have to say, I said to, actually, I said to Biden at the time, I said, that sounds to me like a movie script or something like that. And his, word, his words were, no. It, I said, did it really happen like that? He said, absolutely, positively. 
I did a bit of reporting around the outside. I talked to some people who were on the trip and they said, yeah, he came out of the room that day and told us that story exactly as such. So in a way, there is this very deep seated animosity that he has. And I think that the roots of it, there's a touch of this that is that Biden kind of made his bones in foreign affairs in the 80s during the Cold War. He has a very distinct impression of the KGB. And Putin, of course, is kind of drapes himself in the flag of his life as a former intelligence officer. So some of that is that it activates some of these older nerve endings in Biden. But then there's another piece of it, which I think is really important, that if you go back and you look over the course of his career, there's a theme that is persistently irritating to Biden, which is that he does not like abuses of power. And once I mention this and you start to look for it, you'll see it over and over again. He talks about abuse of power all the time in lots of different contexts. He says Derek Chauvin, the police officer who murdered George Floyd, that was, as in Biden's words, that was an abuse of power. He used that language when he, when he was involved in, in writing the Violence Against Women Act. So there's a real theme. And it's one of the things that bothers him also about the Chinese Communist Party and ultimately, of course, also Vladimir Putin. So that... That is, unless that's going to go away anytime soon in Putin's uh, playbook, I think you can expect them to have a very testy relationship. And as you say, the relationship with China seems to be getting, well, I don't know that it's, well, how does it compare to the relationship under Trump? It hasn't changed as much as people might have thought. Yeah, it's been, it's been sort of consistently tense and I wouldn't expect it to get substantially rosier. What I think it will get is more normal, which is to say that it will begin to use some of the structures of diplomacy. There's really very little of the high-level dialogue going on that there used to be in the U.S.-China relationship. That all kind of was put on the shelf. The, the Trump era China policy was much more of a kind of a posture than it was a fully realized set of plans and, and, and strategies. And so you had a lot of things at cross purposes. You had Donald Trump, who was sort of personally um, affectionate towards Xi Jinping, often talking about him as his, as his friend and hoping they would have this personal relationship. And then on the policy level, you had a much more confrontational approach. And Biden has been so far kind of borrowing a little bit of leverage left over from the Trump administration. They're not removing uh, sorry, not removing tariffs, I should say. Um, they have sanctioned some officials for, for their involvement in, in Xinjiang. And I think you can expect that to to continue. There's, Biden doesn't have a whole lot of what he's trying to avoid, though, and this is important, is he's trying to avoid having this come to blows. And that's, a you know, I, as you, I spent a lot of my life in China, and I, I am more concerned about the possibility of war between these two countries than I have been in the whole time, 25 years I've been working on this issue. So we should be alert to it. We should be concerned. But there, it, it, right now, the U.S.-China relationship is in this very weird space. There's a term in Chinese that the Chinese government often says that they want to try to struggle but not smash the U.S. relationship. And I would say that's more or less where it is. It's, it's struggled against. Struggled Carolyn, against but not smashed. Yeah. Carolyn from Cumbria asks, how does Biden view the Trump presidency and the potential threat of Trump in the wings? Does he consider proving Trump wrong to his followers? That's really interesting. I think he regards the total the Trump presidency as he regards it with utter, complete, thorough disdain. He regards everything about it as doing violence to his to the values that he believed pulled him into government in the first place. So he really has sort of unreserved contempt for what what Trump did and as a as a president, and then ultimately 
you know, his refusal to accept defeat, which is in the end, the cornerstone of democracy. So I think Biden is a lot less worried about Trump personally. He pays him very little attention. I mean, just a funny little aside. He said recently in a press conference, somebody said, they said, uh, your predecessor, and Biden just couldn't help himself. He said, ah, my predecessor, I miss him so. By which he meant that the comparison between himself and Donald Trump seemed to make Joe Biden look better every minute. So there was a piece of that that he was kind of toying with. What really worries him, and this is a very serious matter, is that Trumpism as an idea, of course, endures and carries on. And we're now living in this state of kind of parallel reality that Donald Trump encouraged and engendered. And that has not gone away. In fact, it's only it's only magnified. And that that is a tremendous source of concern to Biden. I'll give you an interesting one. Go ahead, Mark. Well, this is just a fascinating indicator. I mean, that, you know, after the trial of George Floyd recently, polls show that 90 percent of Democrats believe that the the verdict was correct, uh, that Derek Chauvin should have been convicted of murder. 75% of independents believe it. And 46% of Republicans believe that Derek Chauvin was wrongly convicted. That is an extraordinary measure of how far apart these two parties are. And that is a party that is still very much in what I think of as the sort of grip of this kind of seditious cult that is Donald Trump, call it what it is. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's one of the things that gets under my skin, the reading a lot of the media, you'd think, because Trump's gone quiet and has disappeared, Trumpism has gone, and it it certainly hasn't, which leads us on to another question. Will America become more divided before it heals? I'll add to that, will it heal? I worry about it a huge amount. I mean, it is the defining kind of problem that confronts us, and I think it will get worse, I'm afraid, before it gets better. And I don't know how much worse it will get, but I've been working over the last number of years, actually now quite a long time on a book about American political culture and the problems that Trump represented, in my view, are much more a symptom. He's a symptom of things. He is by no means the origin of things. And some of these problems are rooted in the very structure of the American economy, the kinds of disparities we've been talking about. But there are other things like the fact that there are now, as you know, there are more guns in the United States than there are people. And one of the fascinating facts about that, Mark, is that it's not that the number of guns is growing across the population. It's actually consolidating into a smaller portion of the American population. That's a profound fact, because what it means is that you're getting quite literally a sort of armed subculture in the United States. And it, you combine that with the level of animosity and radicalization and, and unreality. And it's a really worrisome set of, it's a, a worrisome set of facts. And what I do know, though, is that the words of a president matter. And I think the degree to which Biden has been determined to try to reduce some of the the language of hostility. Obviously, his his policies are by no means mild. I mean, he is pursuing an active policy agenda that is that is certainly more progressive, more radical than than his opponents want. Uh, but when it comes to just the tenor of the presidency, what did he say on on his first day in office? He said, "I will devote my whole soul to the trying to bring this country together," and that that matters because in the same way that a president can use his his pulpit to uh, to lead people into an inferno, it's also possible that a president can lead people away from it. So that matters. Do you see any sign of the Republican Party 
I'm, I suppose this is a partisan comment in the way I phrase it, but coming to its senses, a more centrist post-Trump party? I mean, I don't, but I mean... Not as it's currently... Not as it's currently organized. And I think part of the problem is the way that the, that our, this gets to more than just, you know, which ideas carry the, carry the commentary, commentary. It's really about the way that elections are structured. I mean, the fact that you now have uh, electoral districts that are drawn, gerrymandered at such extreme partisanship means that in order to get elected, you have to become more and more extreme. I mean, there are, like so many things, there are structural systemic reasons for why things are the way they are. As long as there is as much money in politics, that's going to drive people towards the extremes because you have candidates who are being essentially groomed by their donors. This is not a radical thing to say. I'm just describing the state of play. They are being groomed by their donors to be absolutist in their opposition to what in previous generations was an ordinary level of of taxation and spending. And, you know, that has become almost a kind of party religion, this idea that we must eliminate uh, taxation, that the very government itself is illegitimate. All of these are these extremist representations that grow out of the fact that the ways that we elect people in this country are have have lost their credibility with a large portion of the public because they are so perforated by money and by, uh, you know, the partisan structure. But look, if there's a there's this, as you know, there's this bill working its way through Congress right now, which is essentially reforms to democracy. And uh, one of the things in there, some of that is about trying to avoid voter suppression in places like Georgia. But there's there's also in there to try to eliminate partisan gerrymandering. And I, in some ways, that's, that's, you know, the hidden secret ingredient of a lot of our troubles today is that we've set up a structure that drives people as far apart as possible. Mm. Another foreign policy question, and I'm, one I'm particularly fascinated in. You mentioned you've worked on China. Do you think China will invade Taiwan? And if so, what should Biden do about it? I worry about it, but I don't think China will invade Taiwan in the short term. Um, I, and uh, you know, we can talk about how long short term is. There was a bit of a chilling moment the other day when, when the head of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command said that there was, in his mind, a not insignificant chance that China would invade Taiwan in the next six years. That was a real wake-up call for a lot of people uh, who study the issue. My own view is that that they won't do it as long as there is some reasonable risk that it would cause a war with the United States. Because I think one of the mistakes we sometimes make analyzing China from the outside is underappreciating their own sense of fragility. And one thing that they don't want is a war with the United States. They would be happy to have a contested relationship. They'd be happy to figure out a way to give us a black eye. But as long as there is a chance that they would find themselves in a full-scale confrontation, which they might lose, that's where the basic risk aversion, I think, will prevail when it comes to Communist Party thinking on this. But the fear is that there could be something unplanned, a kind of cascade of mistakes and miscalculations. And part of what's happening right now in this country is there's a much more active conversation going on about, is it time for us to articulate very clearly that if China goes and attacks Taiwan, that the United States will come to Taiwan's defense? For a generation, we've had this policy known as strategic ambiguity, which says it's not clear what we would do. And there there are some people who say, either explicitly or behind closed doors, we need to make it clear to Beijing that 
this is not a negotiable question that if they attack Taiwan, they would find themselves in, in a war with the United States. The risk of doing it publicly is that you put them in a corner and, and maybe you don't want to do that. So there are ways to communicate this privately that might have the same effect. Another foreign policy, sort of foreign policy, not for us. Biden's first official state visit as president is the UK. What does that signify? Special relationship, three question marks. I do think, I mean, special relationship is still at, at the foundations of, of American diplomatic strategy. I think Biden is, as we know, kind of a, in some ways, he is a traditionalist when it comes to things that he thinks have worked for the United States. It's part of the reason why he's slow to get rid of the filibuster. It's part of the reason why he's not dying to expand the Supreme Court. And he would regard the special relationship, I mean, a functioning sort of full-fledged special relationship as as vital. And he thinks of it as more important than you know any one prime minister or another. It's no great secret. He doesn't have a, a deep affection for Boris Johnson. But I think I think what he wants is to try to bring America's position in the world back to something that was more recognizable to what it was a few years ago. And part of that is reviving our alliances. And uh, and the UK is an important part of that. Another foreign policy. Do you have any insight on Biden's perspective on Israel? Many see Trump's Middle East policy as more successful than Obama. Do you think Biden will do well on the Middle East policy? It depends how you define do well, but I think he <laughs> is... He is of a different view on some things with with Trump. A couple of things we know: he's not moving the embassy back to Tel Aviv. He is has no plans to tear up the Abraham Accords, as they're known, which have created a a, a neighborhood, a more secure neighborhood for Israel than it's had before. So some of those things are likely to stay, and I think those are very important to people who pay close attention to the U.S. Israel relationship. One thing that's also clear, though, is that he's a lot less comfortable with Bibi Netanyahu. They go back a very long way. I tell some stories in the book about them going back decades. But he's also very frank, and they've had very testy moments. And, you know, I, in some sense, Netanyahu had this period of very close relations with the Trump administration, with Jared Kushner and so on. That period is, is, is very much over. But in the same way that Biden has his problems with Boris Johnson, but that doesn't undermine the sanctity of the special relationship, I don't think you should expect that the U.S. is in any way fundamentally reevaluating its relationship with Israel. We're coming near to the end, and a great question from the audience. Is there anything that's surprised you about his presidency so far? I think I've been surprised by the degree to which he is willing, and I think this is to the good, he is willing to to recognize the farce of bipartisan imaginings in Washington right now. You know, I, I worried as I would talk to him in the can during the campaign that he would often talk about the idea that, you know, that Republicans would have, as he's put it, an, an epiphany and that there would be this moment of, you know, daisies coming up and, and doves, um, you know, flying across the sky. And I just thought to myself, I know that he comes from a period in which bipartisanship did thrive, but I worry that he's going to waste a lot of time and energy hoping for that to, to come to pass. And he hasn't done that. He has recognized it for what it is. He knows Mitch McConnell. He understands Mitch McConnell's playbook. And he's not going to sit around and participate in this fiction that somehow there's going to be this sudden new awakening on the part of the Republican Party. His belief is that the way you begin to change the political polarization in this country is by delivering, like delivering for people, really show them that government can actually do something that helps them in their lives. And you don't do it just on, you know, 
rhetoric and demagoguery and all that kind of stuff. And so what he's doing is sort of getting to work and saying, we're going to try to figure out if we can, I mean, putting some money into people's pockets with the stimulus plan, getting vaccines into people's arms, all that kind of stuff. So that's is, that pragmatic, is that pragmatism enough? I was struck by a recent review of your book, which ended up saying the language of mourning and solace is not enough. What we need is a language of outrage and the politics of it too. Does he need more of a coherent vision? Well, I, I wouldn't be so sure that he doesn't have a bit of outrage in him. You know, I, I take that point and I generally agree with it, but I also think there is a time and a place for everything. And he could not have come into this presidency in the language of outrage and skipped the language of mourning. Had he done that, it would have been a mistake. It would have set the country back for one thing. And uh, it, would have, it would have launched us into this next phase of of the conflagration. And, and I don't think that we could really afford it. We were literally on the, on the brink of violence. And, but take a look at his policies. And what you find in there is a spirit of sustained outrage that is, that is, that is quite clear. Nobody who is embarking on the sort of dramatic reforms that he has pursued uh, is fired by something lesser than uh, urgency. We'll finish off with one that uh, requires you to get out of your crystal ball. What do you think Biden's legacy will be? <laughs> well, it's I, it's a bit early, uh, but at this point, you know, if his presidency, for whatever reason, was cut short, he would be known perhaps as the person who committed the United States to cutting its carbon emissions in half by 2030, and he'd be known as the person who introduced for the first time in American history a uh, a child tax credit that could reduce by 50% the number of children in poverty. I mean, the United States has has more children in poverty than any other advanced country. We have 12 million kids who are hungry in this country. Attacking that and calling it out and naming it, that in and of itself is is an important thing to do. So I think his legacy will, you know, it's way too early to know, but what he has expressed so far is a belief in the possibility that government and that democracy can function again. And that, that's a big bet. And I think an important bet. Indeed. Well, Evan Osnos, thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I hope the audience and you did as well. Don't forget the book. Thanks, Mark. Much appreciated. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.